Well, good morning. This sermon, believe it or not, will be about discouragement, which is strange because the transfiguration story is usually portrayed as like this high point in Jesus' ministry, and this amazing thing that happened to the disciples is often referred to as like a mountaintop experience as contrasted with uh, the drudgery of life in the valley. Well, um, I'm going to spin it in the opposite direction, which struck me as odd. While I was working on the sermon, I thought, why am I going this way? And then the next day, Russia invaded Ukraine, and I thought, oh, maybe this is why I'm spinning it this way. So we'll see. Um, Raise your hand if you have ever felt discouraged. Okay, some of you may be able to relate to my message here. Um, a few years ago, I was vacationing with my wife in Upper Michigan. Um, and it was at a time in my life when I was feeling pretty discouraged. I was in a bad headspace. Uh, I was a little bit depressed. Um, I had a great marriage. I was part of a supportive community, but... My work was, I was feeling kind of disconnected from my work, and the church I was going to at the time was kind of a strange scene, and uh, I don't know, God felt distant, and my prayers felt like they were just, you know, going off into the ether without any particular destination. Um, some unresolved issues from my past were trying to assert themselves and demanding some attention, and mostly I just, I just felt alone, and I felt discouraged. It, it was like, it was hard to nail down, like, what is the overall point of my Christian life? Like, what is this moving towards? It didn't, I didn't feel productive or useful uh, for the kingdom. I was feeling kind of alienated from my own life. Um, so one day on this vacation, we were staying in a cabin near the coast of Lake Michigan. And I was looking at a map, and I noticed that we were very near the northernmost point of Lake Michigan, uh, a place called Scotts Point, and I thought, I'm going to go see what that spot is like. It looked desolate and remote on the map, so I thought, let's, let's go see what this spot is like. Um, I got a picture of it. Can we, can we get that first slide? Okay. Um, and my wife stayed home. I went out by myself that day because I felt like being alone and grouchy. Um, you see, it was overcast and blustery, and the surf was up, and behold, Scotts Point turned out to be this really desolate place difficult to access. It was a wilderness of sand dunes and gravelly swales and grassy marshes, and the surf was high. Um, and just offshore, there was, I saw this, this lone rock, this rock out in the middle of the water, off by itself, being buffeted by the rough water, and that rock looked just like the way I felt. And I looked at that rock and I just wept and took a lot of pictures of it. I was out there feeling sorry for myself in the wind and, and, and the rain and I just felt so discouraged. And I'm going to try to develop this idea that while the transfiguration itself may have been a wild event, and it was wild, I mean, you don't see anything like that elsewhere. Um, that coupled with what happened immediately next, it may not have been a high point in Jesus' ministry. I think it was a low point. And I think Jesus and his disciples wound up really discouraged and lonely and buffeted by their environment. Which is why I'm calling today's sermon, How Long Must I Put Up With This? Or How Much More of This Can I Stand? Um, let me give the basic outline of my message so you can follow along. We're going to go over the 
context of the passage, and I'll take a quick look at the text itself, a few things I want to point out. Uh, I'll give my own twisted interpretation of what it all means, and then we'll try to develop a personal application. Right? With me? Great. Let's pray. <laughs> oh, thank you, Lord God, for uh, your written word. It's, it's just like a miracle to me that we can look into uh, your will and your ways. Please bless uh, my speech this morning, that, that I can be clear and concise, and please open the hearts of everyone present, everyone listening, um, to receive from you what you would have for them today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Okay, a little bit of context. So besides Jesus, Peter, James, and John were present at this bizarre occurrence, and reports of it appear in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke but not John, even though he was present. I've often wondered about that. My only rationale for that is that John's gospel appeared last, and I suppose that perhaps he had access to the earlier gospels and thought, yeah, okay, they covered that pretty well. I don't have anything more to add. And in fact, no. And in fact, John's gospel contains a lot of material that does not appear in the other gospels. And I rather think that... Um, he probably looked over those other Gospels and thought, yeah, well, that's okay, but they forgot this. Or, yeah, they've reported that accurately, but they've missed what it was like to be with Jesus. That's more the, the, the tone of John's Gospel. And it's not like we have no firsthand accounts of this event. Uh, in Second Peter, uh, in the first chapter, Peter mentions this incident, uh, saying, you know, I didn't make up some wacky tale about the glory of Jesus. I was there when it happened, and I saw it with my own eyes, and I heard that voice from the cloud with my own ears. Um, now, the three accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're very similar. They're not identical. They're close enough that it, you're, you're, it's obvious that the authors are talking about the same incident, but they're different enough that you feel pretty confident that these are three different people who gathered their information about this thing more or less independently. Uh, it looks like Matthew is probably cheating off of Mark's paper or vice versa. They're very similar. Um, and, but some of the, I want to point out some of the differences because uh, Matthew and Mark, see, Luke says that the disciples were heavy with sleep and then woke up when this wild glory thing started happening. Matthew and Mark say, no, they were wide awake when it started and they wound up face down in the dirt, overwhelmed with terror and fear. That makes more sense to me. So I'm going with that version, that flavor. Um, the three accounts all mention Peter's bizarre remark. But Matthew mentions it without further comment. Luke says that he didn't know what he was talking about. And Mark says not only did he not know what he was talking about, but he was scared out of his wits. Well, it's one of my favorite lines in the Bible. This, oh, let's build three tents. I had like three pages of notes just teasing out that remark. But I thought, you know, I'm going to let the scriptures illuminate the commentaries. The scriptures say he didn't know what he was talking about and he was out of his mind when he said it. So I'm just going to let that remark, though it's one of my favorites, I'm going to let that pass. It's on, it's on the cutting room floor. Um, and the third difference, the, uh, Matthew and Mark mentioned that on their way down from the mountain after this happened, that the disciples asked Jesus a question about Elijah, like, that was Elijah, right? Uh, what was that all about? I thought he was supposed to come first. And Jesus said, oh, Elijah is to come first. He did come first. He came, uh, John came in the spirit of Elijah. And you see how that worked out for John. He got treated the way all the great prophets do. Um, 
So that's, that's significant. Just hold on to that. There was an expectation of Elijah. We'll talk about that more later. Um, yeah. Okay. In the context of the, the rest of the Gospels, the, Luke makes it clear. Luke states explicitly that this occurred very near the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, that he was discussing with Moses and Elijah his departure or exodus that he was to accomplish soon at Jerusalem. And by the end of chapter 9, Luke mentions, and now Jesus turned his face towards Jerusalem. And it doesn't take you more than a couple days to walk from anywhere in Israel to Jerusalem. Not a very big place. Um, so we know this incident took place right at the end of his earthly ministry, but it appears in the middle of all of the Gospels. Why? Because the Gospels are not in chronological order. That was not a value of ancient uh, authors. We like to put things nice, neat, and orderly, um, uh, usually chronologically. That's how we like to do our literature. That wasn't an issue in the first century. They were more interested in grouping things like thematically. So all the parables over here, all the sermons over there, miracles up front and center. One thing that the ancient authors you know, in the Bible and elsewhere were really into was putting important things in the middle and they're into symmetry. There's this thing, you may notice this pattern all throughout the Bible, if you look for it, you'll often, you, you'll be reading along and you read a passage and you'll scratch your head and say, didn't I just read that? Like, just a few paragraphs ago, there's this weird repetition. And if you look carefully, you'll often, not always, but you'll often notice, wow, when you see two of the same thing, there's something really significant right midway between them. The repeated uh, passages act like parentheses or brackets that um, outline the thing that's really important. Now, the story of the Transfiguration appears in all three Gospels, but it's not just the story of the Transfiguration. There is a block of text that goes out and out again until there's five little vignettes, and it's this chunk that appears almost the same. Again, similar but a little different in all three Gospels, and it's right smack in the middle, just about midway between the baptism and the triumphal entry. So it's in the middle of the story, must be important. It's got a double bracket around it, it must be really important. So on either side of the story of the transfiguration, there's some discussion, like right before, Jesus gives a brief uh, uh, lesson concluding with some of you will see the glory of God in your lifetime. Right after the transfiguration is the story of the healing of an epileptic, which ends with the people marveling at the glory of God. Before and after that, Jesus foretells his death, first time and second time. So this Jesus revealing his glory, that's important. So don't forget, Jesus is God. And that's the way one usually goes with this uh, text, but I'm, I'm taking a different angle. I'm going to couple this with the passage that comes right after and take it in a different direction. Um, Okay, now we're going to take a quick look at the text itself. There's just a few observations I want to make there. Um, first of all, this, this line, they, they go up in the mountain with Jesus, and while they were praying, the appearance of his face was altered. Now, the other two Gospels, they use the word transfigured. The Greek word is metamorphothi, from which we get metamorphosis. You know what a metamorphosis is. In goes a caterpillar, out comes a butterfly. Complete change of form, right? Not the same shape. Luke seems to take simpler language 
His face looked different, like he put on makeup. He had a strange expression. Well, no, it wasn't just like changing the expression of your face. <coughs> the appearance of my face is altered. No, he, Luke had choice of a few different Greek words for, that we translate altered. Your translation may say changed. Um, the word indicates that it's not that it was his same face with a different appearance, like with makeup or a new expression. It's his face changed to the appearance of a different face. The form itself was changed. And his clothes flashed like lightning. They weren't just like reflecting light. They were emanating light. And then he was seen uh, to be chatting with Moses and Elijah. Okay, why Moses and Elijah? Why not Adam and Eve? Why not Abraham and Isaac? Um, Ham and Shem, I don't know. Uh, David and Solomon. Why Moses and Elijah? Well, I'm going to start with Elijah. And uh, I will illustrate this through uh, the commentary of Charles Schultz. I, I've got a, uh, here we go. So here's Charlie Brown. He's watching golf on TV, okay? All right, golf fans, this is it. The old pro has to make this one. He's down to the last putt, and he can't play it safe. He's got to go for it. There's no tomorrow. There's no tomorrow? There's no tomorrow! They just announced on TV that there's no tomorrow! There's no tomorrow! They just announced it on TV! Panic! Panic! Run! Flee! Hide! Run for the hills! Flee to the rooftops! Run! Hide! Somehow... I never thought it would end this way. And I thought Elijah was to come first. <laughs> Why would you think Elijah was to come first? Well, because Malachi said so. In Malachi, uh, was it four, verses uh, five and six, Malachi plainly states, behold, I will send Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the uh, that the Lord comes. There was a profound expectation among Jews then and now that Elijah will appear to herald the appearance of Messiah. You may recall, Elijah was a great prophet who did not die, but was sucked up into heaven. He was issued a special pass card, a um, go to heaven, go directly to heaven. Do not pass the grave, do not collect funeral expenses. Uh, and then Malachi comes along and says, oh, and he's coming back too. And when you see him, he'll be heralding the appearance of Messiah. Now, I mentioned that after the disciples saw him up there, they asked Jesus, okay, what was that about? Why do we say that Elijah comes first? And Jesus says, well, he did. That uh, um, John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. So Elijah is there as a great prophet. Why is Moses there? What did Moses, what was Moses' legacy? What did Moses bring to the Israelites and to the world? The law, which is why we call it the law of Moses, right? Well, and freedom too, somebody mentioned, absolutely. And at Passover, you remember both. Um, so if Moses is there, say, representing the law, and Elijah is there representing the prophets, the law and the prophets, where have I heard that phrase before? Oh, in about a dozen places throughout the entire Bible, the law and the prophets, when that phrase is used, you're referring to everything that God has to say to humanity. All of God's expectation for us, his will for us, his destiny for us is encapsulated in the law and the prophets. Um, there are two examples uh, 
apropos to today's conversation, in uh, Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, hey, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. No, I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. A few chapters later, Matthew 22, he says, uh, he's asked, so what's the most important commandment? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And there's another one just like it, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. So Jesus has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. And what that looks like is love God and love your neighbor. And he showed us what the complete fulfillment and satisfaction of the law was in the crucifixion. And it's coming up soon, and it's what Moses and Elijah were talking with them about. From this, I conclude that um, the gist of their conversation, Jesus' whole mission was to fulfill the law and the prophets. So who shows up a couple of weeks before it's time to go to Jerusalem? Moses and Elijah. And I suppose the conversation was like, dude, you're doing great. It's good to see you. You're looking good. We miss you up there. You're doing fine, but the word just came down from the Father. We're going ahead with this salvation plan. It's on, and it's this year. You're going to be sacrificed at Passover in Jerusalem this year. It's time to turn your face towards Jerusalem. Good luck. What rotten news. It may have looked awesome if you were a mere human and you're watching these three beatified beings uh, uh, communing. Maybe that looks cool, but I don't think it was cool for Jesus. I think it sucked, okay? And we have some indication from the Scripture of what kind of mindset this exchange left Jesus in. Okay, so the very next passage, we're going to read through them, leaving a little bit of it. I'm going to summarize here. Uh, Luke chapter 9, starting at verse 37, the very next verse, okay? On the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a great crowd met them. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son. I begged your disciples to cast his, his demons out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long do I have to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. He heals the son, hands him back to the father. But the people were all marveling. Uh, while the people were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So I'm going to run through this scenario from the disciples' perspective, okay? And perhaps this is my interpretation. I think we're on the interpretation section here. Um, let me take a look at how it seems to me this whole experience went down for the disciples, both those who were on the mountain and those who were trying to keep things going in the valley while they were away. So three disciples were invited on a private prayer retreat, and they think, yay! I wonder if Jesus told them, bring along tent equipment for three tents. And like I picture them on the way up, 
lugging the tent poles, wondering why they were bringing three tents instead of four or two or whatever. And I, I think them, they're like arguing like, who's going to get to kip with Jesus? Well, you slept with them last time. I did not. I've never been with Jesus. Blah, 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 blah. And maybe this inspired Peter's remark. Oh, now I understand why you had us bring three tents. It's not for us. It's for you, Elijah, and Moses. That's speculation. But they thought they were in for a fun overnight retreat with Jesus. And instead, he goes all glory on them. A couple of dead guys show up talking about death. Peter goes mental. They're swallowed by a glowing cloud. They hear the very voice of God. And they say to themselves, you know what? This is about all I can stand. I can't take any more of this deity thing. And they fall flat on their faces. They check out. They're sworn to secrecy. They come down the mountain to find a scene of chaos. Jesus rebukes and insults them and then speaks plainly of his death. They cannot perceive the meaning of this simple statement and are afraid to even ask him about it. I think they must have felt so stupid. This is at the very end of their years of ministry together. And they find like, wait a minute, how come I can't cast out this demon? We went on this missionary trip and things went so well and we came back so excited that the demons obeyed, the, obeyed us in the name of the Lord and blah, blah, blah. Now, and, and Jesus was not very gracious in that moment. I think they must have felt like idiots, like what am I doing? Shouldn't I be further along in my ministry by now? Shouldn't my life be showing more fruit or can't I be more effective than now? I think they felt alienated from themselves from their mission, and from Christ. From Jesus' perspective, he brings his favorite three disciples with him along to witness this bizarre thing that's about to happen. He sets aside his humanity and takes back up his deity, which you think about that. This suggests that the normal state for Jesus is trying to keep his deity under wraps trying to suppress his true nature and let it leak out just in little measured um, snippets whenever it's time to perform a miracle. So in this case, he's able to relax that and lean back into his true nature. And what does he get for it? Very bad news. We know from Gethsemane that he was not totally into this scene. I think it was a discouragement. Like, really? There's no other way. I mean, I knew this from the start, but I was always like holding out hope that maybe there'd be another way. There's no other way. The disciples freak out and then check out. He descends the mountain to find chaos, clamor, uh, clinging, and desperate crowds, and his trusty disciples completely ineffective. And when he shouts, you faithless and twisted generation, how much longer do I have to put up with you? There is no other way to read that than except with dire frustration. There, there, it, 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 it is the way it sounds. He was really upset. And I think it is fair to render the last thing he says in this passage this way. I, I picture all this commotion going on around and they're all people all freaking, ah, it's the glory of God. Look, he's healed. Look, he's a miracle worker. And I see him grabbing one of the disciples, maybe one of the ones you never hear from, Bartholomew. He doesn't even have any lines in the Bible. Just grabbing one of them by the scruff of the neck and looking him straight in the eye and saying, get this through your thick, fat 
skull. I am about to be betrayed into the hands of the authorities and will be killed. And Jesus gets a blank stare. They just can't take it in. They don't get it. I think this was a day of great discouragement for Jesus and that he may have felt completely alienated from his disciples and discouraged in his ministry. Our application. Let's say, so the transfiguration, it was this big exciting moment. I suppose, to see Jesus as God. That's, that's pretty big. Let's, let's say, and, and then like 24 hours later, they're just in the pits. So let's say the transfiguration is like the day you first understood that Jesus is God and he died for your sins and you want to live for him and you want to live into a life of service to Jesus. But then you discover life is like life in the valley. Now, I don't know that the disciples ever really like got back into lockstep with Jesus. When do you see the disciples like as one with Christ? They're just firing on all pistons. They're, they're, they're answering correctly. They're, they're, uh, 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 Peter's boneheadedness is left behind. Peter's boneheadedness is never left behind until Pentecost. I mean, I, I, I ran through the Gospel of Luke after this point, just looking for interactions between Jesus and disciples. What do you get? Immediately after this incident comes James and John arguing about who's the greatest in heaven. I'm going to be at the head table. You're not even going to be at the head table at all. You're going to be waiting on the head table. I am. What a letdown for Jesus, I think, and what a petty thing for the disciples. Um, at the Last Supper, oh, a, a little later on, Jesus tells an important parable, and Peter says, excuse me, were you talking to me? <laughs> yeah, at the Last Supper, Phil, Jesus is going on and on about going to the Father, and Philip says, just show us the Father, it's all we need. And Jesus is like, how long has it been, and you still don't understand that when you see me, you see the Father? You get Peter completely blows the foot-washing thing. Judas gives up and leaves. Peter, James, and John fall asleep in Gethsemane. Jesus is arrested and they scatter. Jesus is crucified and they hide. I don't think they were really back in step with Jesus, even after the resurrection. You notice every time they run into Jesus after the resurrection, it's always like, Jesus, right? They're just never quite there. Even that breakfast on the beach was tense and full of misunderstanding and like just missed, uh, missed connections. And, and one of the disciples says, hey, what about him? And Jesus says, it's none of your business. Follow me. I don't think they were really in step with Jesus until the day of Pentecost when everything changed. And Peter was transformed, not transfigured. He got he's stuck with the same body, but he was a different man after Pentecost. And you see no word in the scriptures after Pentecost of the disciples like, what does it mean? Who is Jesus? What do you do? What do you think this means? I don't know. No, that is all settled. They are completely focused on their mission all the way to their, um, to their martyrdoms. Every one of them remains faithful to the end. So let's say that the transfiguration is like the day you got saved or really understood that you wanted to serve Jesus. And Pentecost is like 
your best Christian life, the fullness of your discipleship that you figured you would live into. The scriptures talk about it's our aspiration to grow into the full likeness of Christ, that we can move from strength to strength, that we throw off the old man like an old cloak, that we put on the new man, that we're no longer slaves to sin, all this great sounding stuff, but I see a different law at work in the members of my flesh, right? And I get discouraged. So the disciples had many months or many adventures yet after they started following Jesus and before Pentecost, they must have felt so discouraged so often. How did they get through it? How do we get through it? I haven't made it, made it to my Pentecost. I've had a few glimpses of it sometimes like, oh, it could be like that. It just seems, so, it seems out of reach. And that's how I felt looking at that rock. I was like, I am just like, I'm just so far away from my Pentecost. I feel like I'm nowhere. Well, so I took a careful look at how the disciples got through. How did they get from their transfiguration to their Pentecost? And um, I see three qualities. Three, because there's supposed to be three. No more, no less in a sermon, right? And they all start with the same letter. I get bonus points. And the first one I derived was perseverance. They simply didn't give up. Judas gave up. The other 11, you don't give up. They didn't feel like it. They felt stupid. They felt inadequate. They felt detached from their ministry. They didn't know what they were doing or where they were going. They couldn't understand a simple statement like, I must be betrayed to the authorities. I must die. I must rise on the third day. Straight over their heads. They did not give up. Aren't you glad that when Jesus was discovered, he did not give up? Jesus did not... I, we understand Jesus in, in hindsight. We know how the whole story goes. But when I sit with this story, I think, could Jesus have given up? After that news that he got on the mountain, heading down into the valley, he gets into the valley and hears this grasping, needy crowd. What if he just said, forget it? Faithless and twisted generation, I give up. This is not worth it. Aren't you glad Jesus persevered? It's a fancy word that means don't give up. If you give up, then you know you will never reach your Pentecost. You must keep going if you have any hope of reaching your Pentecost. Now, the Lord seems to, well, we know the Lord distributes uh, gifts to each of us differently as suits him, and that is a mystery. Some, for some people, they seem to, their Pentecost seems to arrive on the day of their salvation. They just move directly into a life of, of, of power and uh, effectiveness, and they live out a, an effective ministry all the way to the, the day of their death. That's unusual, but it happens. Most of us, it's just a struggle. And, and many of us, we don't really see our Pentecost until the day we die. It's just a struggle against sin and the old nature for every day that we are trapped in this, in this body. Persevere. And so while you are persevering, because you really can't know what your progress will look like, Second point, you must be patient. You must have patience. You have to have patience for yourself, and you have to have patience for others. Aren't you glad Jesus was patient with his disciples? He loses his temper a couple of times, such as in this uh, uh, story here, which to me reminds me he was real. He was a man, and he knew and loved his disciples, and they really exasperated him. It just makes his patience all the more real to know that it had its limits. And third, you need humility. Of course, I mean humility, but I wanted all three words to start with P. So you need humility. And it occurred to me as I was thinking this over, 
I think that Peter must have been one of the most humble people who ever lived. I know when I do something stupid and I know people are snickering at me or I just said or did something that was just so inappropriate or that totally fell flat, I know how I react. I get angry and defensive and I go on the offensive. My coworkers can testify when it's, uh, they've caught the brunt of this. And if you think I'm grouchy now, you should have seen me before I was saved. I could be savage if I felt like I had done something stupid or that you were looking at me poorly. Peter never, I could not find one instance where Peter responds to his humiliations, which appear in almost every page of the New Testament. He never lashes out. He never comes up with sarcasm or defensiveness. The only time I could think of him like reacting to something stupid he did was the denial of Christ. And he, was, he didn't have any other disciples around. That happened to himself. And he didn't need anybody to laugh at him. He heard that rooster crow and he knew in his heart what he had done. And he went off and wept bitter tears. And the only reason we know that is because he must have told about it later. I think Peter is the most humble person I know. If you had pride, if you, just, if you just took offense every time something in your life with Jesus didn't go the way that you thought it should, you'd wind up like Judas. I've had enough of this. This is not what I expected. It's not what I signed up for. This sucks. I'm leaving. You must have humility. So perseverance, patience for yourself and others, <laughs> healthy dose of humility. It's the only way to make it through that valley that's between the Transfiguration and Pentecost. That is my sermon. Thank you very much for your kind and patient attention. Amen.